Now, we want to look at God's word today. We're talking through the book of Genesis. And the reason we're doing this is, is if you think about the word Genesis, it's the same word we get the word genetic or gene from. And when you think about the idea of a human gene, in that, in that gene is not only the design of your life, but all the potential of your life. And so God put this first book in the book of the scriptures, in the book of the Bible, as a, a genetic code for how you would live in a world that is broken, a world that is sinful, and how you would live victoriously in that world, how you would face these challenges and encounters, and at the same time be able to be attentive to the very presence of God in your life, and to have a faith that is an overcoming faith. And so I want you to think with me that everything that's in the book of Genesis, in a way, is an unpacking of everything you're going to face in terms of living your life by faith, in terms of living your life attentive to the presence of God. And the first thing I want you to understand is that we're going we're to look today at chapter 4 of Genesis, and what you see right off the bat is an incredibly dysfunctional family. One of the reasons I love the Bible is because it doesn't hide the dysfunction. But here's the thing. The Bible never calls it dysfunction. It never calls it addiction. It calls it a stronghold. You see, the reason the Bible doesn't, doesn't refer to it as addiction or dysfunction is because a stronghold assumes that there's a spiritual dimension. When you talk about addiction or you talk about dysfunction, you're not assuming a spiritual dimension. You're usually only assuming a psychological dimension. Here's the issue with that. If it's only psychological, the best you can do is learn some coping mechanisms. But if it's a spiritual dimension and you get at the spiritual root, then you're going to see healing in the physical dimension. The issue, the Bible says, yes, there's psychological issues. Yes, there are personality issues. There's dysfunction. There's addiction. There's all those things. Those are real. But the spiritual root of all of our emotional strongholds is sin. And the remedy for sin is not, <laughs> is not simply to get counseling. The, I love counseling. I'll pay anybody to listen to me. The root issue is sin, and therefore the remedy is Jesus. Amen. The remedy is the blood of Jesus. The remedy is the cross of Christ. And the more we let the efficacy of the blood, the more that we allow the efficacy of the cross to come into our lives, it will root out the spiritual issues and bring physical, emotional, spiritual healing. Are you tracking with me in this? The interesting to me thing to me is God designed you with an early warning system. It's called your emotions. So the emotions are basically the smoke detector of your life. Have you ever noticed those of you who have a smoke detector that they always seem to have the batteries go out at night <laughs> when you're asleep? 
there's an interesting thing with smoke detectors is you can take the batteries out so that you don't have to be bothered with them anymore, but then you don't know about the fire. When a smoke detector does go off, the smoke detector is not the fire. It's the thing telling you there is a fire. That is how God designed your emotions. When you're angry, your anger is not the fire. Your anger is telling you there's a spiritual dimension where there is a fire and it needs to be addressed. But what happens to most of us? We want to distract our pain. We want to deny our pain. We want to focus on something else other than our pain. So what we're doing is we're taking the batteries out of the God-designed smoke detectors of our life. Matter of fact, as I'm saying this, I'm remembering there's a smoke detector right in my hallway that I've not put the batteries back in. Are you tracking with me in this? So then the cause of the emotional strongholds of your life, the places where the dysfunction comes from, the places where the addictions come from, the places where the things that make you ashamed of yourself come from, these emotional strongholds are rooted in sin. That doesn't mean there aren't physical issues. doesn't mean there aren't chemical issues. There definitely are those. But the reality is that you and I are also experiencing in our lives the consequences of our own sin. We're living with the consequences of other people's sin, and we're living in an atmosphere that is sinful. I mean, even if you leave New York and go to Pennsylvania, it's sinful. <laughs> Just a different kind of sin. And the problem is, wherever you go, you go with that sin and take it with you. So the issue then is that I've got to be willing to face my own strongholds. Look at how the Bible unpacks the evolution of innocence to sinfulness. In Genesis chapter 2, 25, it says, Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife, were both naked and they felt no shame. They had not yet experienced shame whatsoever. And then within one chapter, chapter 3, shame shows up and then fear. Look at what it says. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now remember, God is never asking a question for information. He knows exactly where Adam is. And he's Adam's answer. Well, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid... Because I was naked, so I hid. Now, this is a fascinating conversation if you think about it. I'm hiding, but I'm talking to you. It's like somebody knocking on the door and you say, go away, nobody's here. Sin makes you stupid. Shame makes you hide. Fear makes you ashamed and makes you run away from the only remedy you have for your shame. Sin is a serious issue. So we're going to read. This, this, is, this scholar has done this translation of Genesis that I really like. So I, wanna, I want us to read this together. I like it when you read God's word out loud. This is a kind of a special translation of Genesis chapter 4. Would you read out loud with me? 
And the human knew Eve, his woman, and she conceived and bore Cain. And she said, I have got me a man with the Lord. And she bore as well his brother, Abel, and Abel became a herder of sheep, while Cain was a tiller of the soil. And it happened in the course of time that Cain brought from the fruit of the soil an offering to the Lord. And Abel, too, had brought from the choice firstlings of his flock. And the Lord regarded Abel and his offering, but he did not regard Cain and his offering. And Cain was very incensed, and his face fell. Now, we're going to read some more in just a minute, but let's, let's do it. I'm a Bible nerd, so I'm going to give you a little Bible nerd background here. So the first thing that's fascinating is this is here in the fourth chapter, just the fourth chapter of the first book of the Bible, there is this very strong Hebrew word for the fact that, that the man had sex with his wife. And basically, it's kind of like he got it on with her. I like that. I thought that was kind of fun. Come on. But you see, nobody, no Bible translator wanted to say any kind of like, popular slang word for having sex. So they put up the most polite word they possibly could, and they said the man knew his wife, or the man knew Eve. Well, he knew her in a very special way. (laughs) And the result of that knowledge was a kid. (laughs) I just think it's funny. The Bible is actually more vulgar than the translators. They want to be polite. But the Bible wants to say a little more, a little more, you know, with an edge. Here's what happened. The second thing that you might not know, but if you look at it kind of closely, is something happens when Eve delivers a son. She basically says, look at me. I am doing what God did. Look at what it says. I have got me a man. That's the, he's not talking about Adam. She had him. In the biblical way. She's saying, I produced a human. Now, if you read too fast, you'll miss. You see, she's already this arrogance, this somewhat conceit. Look at me. Remember what the sin was? If you eat of this, you will be like God. So her first words are, Look at me, I'm doing a God thing. Now, why is that important? Well, let me me tell you about emotional strongholds. Whatever emotional stronghold was in your parents' life is now magnified in your life. Whatever emotional stronghold is in your life will be magnified in your children's life. If we don't deal with emotional strongholds right as they come up in our lives, those emotional strongholds will be passed down from generation to generation. Why is Cain so angry? Because he's just like his mother. Why is he so controlling? Because he's just like mom. So the emotional stronghold of rebellion in mom is now magnified in Cain. Look at how bad it gets. You want to read on with me? And the Lord said to Cain, 
Why are you incensed? And why is your faith fallen? For whether you offer well or whether you do not, at the tent flap, sin crouches, and for you is its longing, but you will rule over it. And Cain said to Abel, his brother, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the soil. Now, in the biblical narrative here, it is very important to notice that God is asking a lot of questions. Again, never for information. But God uses those questions, and if you look at it, you'll start getting insight into the very character of God. Now, one of the things that I want us to look at today in terms of Cain and Abel is I want you to realize that sin must be taken seriously. If it shows up in one generation, it will show up even stronger in the next. These family strongholds are right here in chapter 4. It isn't merely that sin hurt Adam and Eve. Sin was just passed down in an even stronger way to their own offspring. And so what we begin to understand here is you look at this very vivid verse where God comes to Cain before Cain has done anything, good or evil at this point. He comes to Cain and he basically says in his questioning and in his words to Cain, he begins to explain the seriousness of the nature of sin. And he calls it this. He said, sin is crouching at your door. That is a very powerful imagery. And he says, it desires to have you, but you must master it. What we see in this original family dysfunction is a very simple principle. You either kill sin or sin kills you. You and I have this, have this kind of amazing capacity to deceive ourselves into thinking things that are very serious are not that serious. And God is coming to Cain before he has done anything, and he's saying to Cain, there is something crouching in your life right now. That crouching he uses is actually the description of a tiger's pouncing or a leopard's pouncing. So the idea here, God says, sin is a predator, and it is looking for exactly the right opportunity to have access to you, and when it pounces, it will kill you. Now, you, you tracking with me in this? So if it's crouching, it's the nature of sin to hide. It's the nature of sin to make itself look smaller than it is to you, to look less dangerous so that you will lose your perspective and you'll drop your guard. So let's think about some of the ways that it hides in order to crouch. The first is that sin really, really in our society and in this day, has hidden intellectually. If I say to someone, you are a sinner, I will offend them. 
Because how can, you know, that's old-fashioned. Why are you saying that word? I'm not a sinner. There are no sins. So sin has become an intellectual thing that is hidden, which God has said in his word means that's when it's crouching the most. When a predator is hidden is when they're most dangerous. I mean, think about something with me. Why is it that one person lies and we go, oh, that's just the way they are. They're just exaggerating. And another person lies and we want to lock them up. And we want to throw away the key. It's because in some way we have not gotten the idea that lying itself is a crouching of the enemy because he's the father of lies. <laughs> it's so interesting. People sometimes will go, man, you give way too much emphasis to the devil and you give him way too much credit. I said, well, Jesus called him the father of lies, which means in every lie is the DNA of Satan. So whenever you are lying, you are of your father, Jesus said, the devil. I don't want him as a father. He's not a good father. I've even heard pastors say, well, I just ignore Satan, and then he'll ignore me. No, he already has you. You're already held captive to do his will. Sin crouches. Would you look at your neighbor for just a minute? Are you, are you grasping the importance of this? Would you look at your neighbor and say, sin crouches. Sin crouches. And if that didn't make you uncomfortable, it should have. Like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Well, what, what, let's unpack this a little bit more. There's a... There's a scholar by the name of Hannah Arendt. She's a, a Jewish scholar. She wrote an essay after she went to the trial of Adolf Eichmann, one of the, the infamous Nazi, um, you know, terrible people. And she went to the trial, and she wrote about the trial in this essay, and she said this. She said, you know what? He looks ordinary. He looks just like us. He doesn't look evil. Do you know what that means? He is just like us. See, our hope is that evil people look different than me. And that I can recognize them by how evil they look. But she said that one of the most evil regimes that ever existed and one of the leaders of that regime looked just like her. Alexander Solzhenitsyn has a great insight on this. He was a prisoner, a political prisoner of the Soviet Union. He spent many years being tortured, persecuted, living in complete oppression in the gulag of the Soviet Union regime. When he was released, some people said to him, don't you think the world would be a better place if we kill all the guards who tortured you? And Solzhenitsyn said, no. He said, the cord of good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is it that's willing to cut out their own heart? 
in some ways, and this is difficult for a lot of people, in some ways, until you understand how sinful you are, then you'll never know how loved you are. It is when you're willing to embrace that I am as evil as can be because Christ had to die for me on a cross just like he had to die for every other evil person. But I am so loved that he chose to die for me. It's when I realize I'm far more evil than I ever dared to think Yet I am far more loved than I ever dared to hope. See, I grew up in a, I grew up in a very dysfunctional church. And the problem was it was always us and them. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys. We're the moral ones, they're the immoral ones. So the sermons were never about what's wrong with us. It's always what's wrong with them. We are great. You see, if we're great, we don't need a Jesus. If we're great, we don't need the cross. If we're great, we don't need the resurrection because we deserve. We deserve the goodness of God. We deserve the favor of God. We're not asking for mercy. We're asking for justice. It's only when you begin to realize Jesus didn't come for the well, he came for the sick. He didn't come for the righteous, he came for the unrighteous. There is no gospel for the righteous. They don't need it. Also, they don't exist. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. So it isn't a question, are you a little better than somebody here? I've had many people come up to me after, I am so much more righteous than you, Mike. And I go, good for you. The way I see it is this, trying to get to heaven on your own righteousness is like trying to swim from California to Hawaii. Some of you may go farther than others, but you'll still drown because you can't swim all the way to Hawaii, just like you can't, your righteousness will never get you all the way to heaven. It's only when you recognize, and it's only when you stop hiding intellectually, and you recognize, and it has to be a, it has to be a mind. It has to be a, an, an acknowledgement. Lord, I am so sinful. You had to die for me, but I am so loved. You chose to die for me. You know, you, you, this has been hitting me so much lately. Do you understand what it means to persevere to the end? It doesn't mean persevering to the end is that you get to be a better, better, more moral, gooder, gooder person. It means you hold on to the righteousness of Christ till the very end. That the only thing you present is not your righteousness, but his righteousness. And even when you see how broken you are, how sinful you are, you don't go, oh, God, I can't possibly be a Christian because I'm so broken. Oh, God, it can't be possible that you love me because I'm so unlovable. But rather, every time you see your brokenness, you go, yeah, but I know the cross of Jesus Christ. I see the righteousness of Christ. You see, when Satan accuses, it should become a praise and worship gathering. 
It should be a thanksgiving service. He says, look what a liar you are. Yes, but praise God, I'm under the blood. Oh, look what a sexually immoral person. Yes, but thank you. It's Jesus' righteousness, not mine, that makes me right with God. Do you understand? It's not emotional at this point. It's intellectual. If you don't know these truths of what a sinner you are and how saved you are from your sin, the enemy will have a field day with you. So therefore, it becomes an issue that you have to personally stop hiding. Uh, Lisa may kill me for this one, but I'm going to tell it anyway. (laughs) Lisa and I have been married 41 years. We married as two very stupid 21-year-olds. We knew nothing about communication, conflict, relationship, anything else. And I was the stupidest of the bunch. So Lisa comes to me one day and she goes, I'm a terrible wife. And I go, no, you're not, but you could change this, 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 this. I thought she wanted my advice. I was just giving her a little corrective love, you know, and she didn't speak to me for quite a while after that. Here's the deal. It is, it is easy to say I'm a sinner in some ways. Not so easy to start saying, here's where I sin. Here's where I need help. Here's where I have to change. So sin not only hides intellectually, but it hides personally. So what does God say to Cain? It says sin is crouching, ready to take your whole life over, which means it looks like a little thing, but it wants to take your life over. And when it gets you, it doesn't let go. Now, some of the key areas, we've been talking about this the last couple of months, resentment can just look like a little grudge. I'm not a bad grudge. I'm not a big grudge. I'm actually not bitterness at all. I'm just righteous indignation. (laughs) See, here's the problem. A simple grudge will poison your whole life. Because, think about this with me, you cannot maintain a grudge against somebody without feeling superior to the one you have a grudge. But here's the problem. If you feel superior, uh, if you feel superior towards anybody, you'll start feeling superior towards everybody. Oh, and it becomes, you see, this is what the crouching does. It starts to generalize. So if a man has a grudge against a woman, a wife, mother, whatever it is, if a man has a grudge against a woman, sin crouches, it generalizes, and you start to have a grudge against all women. That's misogyny. Misogyny starts as a small grudge that then generalizes into a hatred of women. Well, think about it. That's exactly how racism is. Yes, sir. It starts with a small grudge. Just a, you know, I don't really hate other races, but I feel superior to them. As soon as you feel superior, then it generalizes and you begin to say, I can't stand people of this race. I mean, are you tracking with me in this? You see how little it is? I'm just here in the corner. 
And then it just takes over your life. We were in Uganda back in the late, like 2006 through 2009. It's a nation that's been torn by civil war for, for almost 100 years. Wonderful people, people I love so much, and a country I love, one of the most beautiful countries in the world, one of the most fertile areas in the whole world, and yet torn with, with this tribal uh, civil war that takes place. So I was teaching kind of on some of the stuff like we're talking about today. I was teaching, and, and we had hundreds of people show up for this training. And I began to talk through with them about emotional healing. And at the end, I talked about forgiveness. How do you forgive somebody? And this idea of letting the grudge go. And we had them write the names of the people they needed to forgive and, they, and then bring the paper up to the altar and tear the paper up and leave the resentment behind. So this one beautiful lady, she looked like a, she looked like a queen the way she was so elegant. She came up to give a testimony after that experience. And she looked out over, there were multiple tribes at this meeting who had been at war with each other for 20 years. And she looked out at them and she said, I have hated you. You killed my husband. So one of the tribes had actually raided her village and killed her husband. But you see, she didn't hate the person who killed her husband. She hated the whole tribe. And she said, I'm an intercessor. And I've been going to God for healing for our nation. But today, for the first time, I realized the sickness was in me. And she, and she cried. And she said, I forgive you. She said, I've hated the sound of your voice. I've hated your accent. I've hated the way you look. It's been hard to be here these days with you. But today, I forgive you. And a cry came up from the other tribe. A, a, a sound like I'd never heard before. It was the sound of repentance. Not only, not, you know, not only were they saying, forgive us, they were, forgive me, they were saying, forgive us. And within a short amount of time, three different tribes started reconciling like we'd never seen before. I actually wrote my whole dissertation on this because they called that day the prayer. And they said what happened that day changed the course of their entire nation, especially the church, and it spread to other tribes. You see, just as sin wants power over you in its hiddenness, righteousness, forgiveness, mercy, grace wants to bring power to heal, to change, and to deliver. You get to decide in your life, are you going to live in the bitterness and the bondage that comes from bitterness? Are you going to give yourself to the freedom of forgiveness? Sin will never stay in the corner. It doesn't leave of its own accord. It has to be forced out. But one of the reasons, are you with me? So one of the reasons that we stay in our grudge state, some of the reasons that we stay in this kind of letting sin have its place is primarily because of self-pity. Now, you think about it. Self-pity never looks like anything big. Feeling sorry for yourself, I'm going to say, most of you didn't go, oh my goodness, Mike, that's an awful sin. You don't gasp when I say self-pity. 
But it's so interesting is that the self-pity will give the power to the resentment. Self-pity will give the power to your envy, to your hatred. Why did Cain kill Abel? Because he felt sorry for himself. And he thought if he could get rid of Abel, then he would get what Abel had. Now, in our day and time, I blame HGTV for this. We just recently did the Discovery Plus streaming service. And at night, you know, when we're trying to wind down, we watch, we watch Joanna Gaines and Chip Gaines and their fixer-upper stuff. And, you know, you know, when you watch it, you go, man, I don't have a faucet like that. My house is limiting my happiness. If I just had that bathtub... Stress would be manageable. <laughs> you understand? You see something, you go, man, why don't I have that? Somebody else has, why didn't I get to do that? You understand? Very few of us discipline ourselves when we're in self-pity. We actually stay there way longer than we should. And so what happens is it poisons your whole life because you can't be content with what you have. You have to keep working for more. Whatever security you might actually have, you don't feel it because you need more. I mean, what is workaholism? It's not a work ethic. It's a kind of slavery. It's a bondage. In other words, again, it has a spiritual dimension not just a psychological one. Let's think of some other things. If you're obsessed with your weight, if you're obsessed with how you look, you're not thinking about your health. I love the people who say to me, you know, I like to stay thin, so I smoke my cigarettes. That sounds like a great idea, right? (laughs) So here's the deal. Underneath that obsession, that insecurity, is idolatry. It comes out of self-pity, self-love that's unhealthy. Now, I could talk about it psychologically, but the real issue is spiritually. And it's spiritual, do you understand? And there's remedy for the spiritual. The weapons of our warfare are not of this world, but they are divinely appointed for the tearing down of strongholds. Repentance is sweet. Confession is what God wants from you, and then he's faithful and just to forgive you. Money issues. Friends, you're not being responsible. You're being stingy. You're... You're not being prudent. You're being materialistic. And God will not resource your idolatry. You see, if God's not the means to an end in your life, and if he's not the end for which you have means, then he's not going to be the means to other ends. You see, if he's your treasure, he'll give you all the treasure you want. But if he's not your treasure, he will not give success to your idols. As long as your money is your security, it's a competitor. As long as your job is your security and your worth and your image, then it's a competitor. Now, 
I hear the music, so I have to hurry, don't I? There's actually a trap door up here. Uh, so here's, I, I want to share with you two things, okay, as we close. The first is this. The psalmist says, O Lord, cleanse me of my hidden sins. Why is that? Because there often is in your life this stuff that's tripping you up and you don't know what it is. This is why that one of the remedies of really getting up the stuff that's limiting you is to be in close communion, close fellowship with people who will actually speak truth to you. Now, this also shows why sometimes things like marriage are very difficult. Like, I came into my marriage thinking I was a very charming individual who could charm Lisa. Charm does not work on Lisa. I mean, she sees through it right away and, and just goes, what do you really mean? What are you really saying? Kind of a thing. And so I had to learn to love because I had used charm instead of love. But you see, growing up, I thought, well, you know, people get away with a whole lot more if they're charming. And so I had used that as a coping mechanism to get my way. And I never get my way by charm with my wife. And she forced me to become a person who truly loved and what I said I meant, to count the cost of what I was saying. Am I making sense to you in this? The other thing is this. My own experience, when I was uh, out of seminary and in the 80s, I went on a missionary team, and I thought it was going to be for the rest of my life. And it was part of the Presbyterian church that I grew up in. And so we were in Mexico City, we had teams just like our team in Mexico City all over Latin America and parts of, uh, of, uh, of Asia. And do you know what happened with all those teams? They all fell apart. They didn't fall apart because the mission was too difficult. They didn't fall apart because the culture in the country was too hard to learn. They fell apart because the missionaries turned on each other. For many people on those mission fields, it was the first time they had been in close enough contact with other people that they actually saw their strongholds. And instead of dealing with their strongholds, they turned on each other. You see, if you're really going to get at your hidden sins, you got to be able to handle criticism. Tim Keller says it this way, almost always, I would say 90% of the time, when I get criticism, there is distortion with a grain of truth. The book of Proverbs says over and over and over again, despise not correction. I got to tell you this one story really quickly. So one day I was preaching and this lady came up after the service screaming and yelling at me. You don't preach the Bible. You preach too much about that devil. And she's just, I mean, she's salivating. She's so angry with me. And I sit there and I, I, my first reaction was, I'm going to take this lady apart. <laughs> She's a theological idiot. And I'm going to show her how stupid she is. Because that's my flesh. You come at me, I'm going to make sure you don't come at me again. And the Lord said, is that who you are in Christ? I was like, shut up, Lord. <laughs> Lord. 
Of course, you can't say shut up and Lord in the same sentence. And he goes, do you want to be her pastor or do you want to win this argument? Again, you understand, he never asked questions for information. I said, I want to be her pastor. I am her pastor. Then he said, humble yourself. So I looked at her and I said, will you pray for me that I will preach the word and that I'll be faithful as a pastor? She stopped in her tracks, started crying like a baby, started praying. Oh, God, this is a man of God. He's a man of your word. Oh, he's awesome in spirit. You understand it was a distortion, but she needed my attention. She needed my love, and she needed my humility. As I close this thing out, let me, let me finish with this part. If you ever get a chance, go to Hebrews 11, and you'll see this amazing unpacking of the blood of Abel. That even though, you see, even though Cain killed Abel, Abel's blood spoke. Why did it speak, friends? Because Abel was a type of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the, is the greater Abel. Because what it says in Hebrews is though the blood of Abel speaks, you and I have heard a better word from the blood of Jesus. That the blood of Jesus is even more graciously given than the blood of Abel. You understand, whatever spiritual stronghold you have, whatever emotional stronghold you have, the reason you can confess it, the reason you can face it, is because his blood speaks a better word. And this is why we don't have to pretend like we're not dysfunctional. This is why we don't have to pretend like we're innocent when we're not. We're broken. We're bankrupt. But we have a blood that's more gracious. We have a blood that speaks a better word. Let that blood speak for you. And nothing else. Just the blood of Jesus.